0: Welcome back to Professor Erin McFarlane, who's been a guest on this podcast before. So could you please reintroduce yourself for the purposes of first-year biology?
1: I am um, Dr. Aaron McFarlane. I am the head of the Statistical Genetics Lab, which for a while was just me, but now has people in it, at York University the Biology Department. I work on hybridization and genetics and statistics.
0: Um, so today we're going to talk about species, and we'll start with something really simple. Uh, a question that probably every person on the street can answer if I ask them, What's a species, Erin?
1: Oh, man. Um, no, this is just such a hard question. And I think if you ask three biologists, you might get 10
0: opinions <laughs> on what a species is. Okay, okay. So back off. You know, most people will think that's an easy question, but it's really not. I admit I asked you that to try and get that kind of reaction of the, and I loved your phrase that ask three biologists and get 10 opinions because that's about right. But what I said in my question is sort of true is that if you ask anybody off the street, they will think they know the answer. Every random person you ask can t- give you a solution to that question. And every biologist probably can't. So let's start with a slightly different question because most people when you ask that question, we're going to give you something which we would call the biological species concept, maybe not by name, but most people will answer with that, even if they don't know that's what they're doing. So what is the biological species concept?
1: The, this is a question that I can't answer because this is a very commonly described concept. Um, it was proposed by Ernst Meyer in the 1940s and basically says that a species is a group of animals that can reproduce with each other. Um, But can't reproduce with other groups. So, you know, it means that within a group, they can make offspring and those offspring can make offspring. But if they try to make offspring with another group, it, it doesn't work. So there's this reproductive isolation that we're looking for to try and to say that we have a species. So You know, and this this makes some sense. If you can reproduce, then you can have selection for the surviving offspring. And so this makes a lot of sense. And this is probably pretty intuitive. Someone can look at dogs and say, look, we have a species. They can look at cats, say, look, we have a species. They can say dogs and cats can't breed with each other. And that's kind of the end of it.
0: Okay, so it's a concept whereby reproduction and barriers to reproduction are key in how we define anything. So why isn't that just the answer?
1: Oh, because there's so many cases where it doesn't work. You know, there's lots of species that reproduce without sexual reproduction. So right away, what do we call them? I just said species, but we don't need sexual reproduction to define them. So these are plants that can self-fertilize or microbes that like bud and split into two or species where like rotifers that are all females and can act as clones or um instances where we have females going through parthenogenesis what do you do when you don't have sexual reproduction? so if if we consider all life from bacterias all the way to mammals a lot of the world doesn't work like this according to the biological species concept so if you're a mammal or a bird and you're not too weird or hybridizing then it's a pretty good concept. But we, as I said, I work on hybrids and there's lots of perfectly viable hybrids where if you would look at it, you'd say, look, hey, we have two species. And then, oh, hey, we have intermediate individuals um, who can themselves produce offspring. In addition to that, there's the problems of things like fossils. It's really hard to measure reproductive isolation when you have fossils because you can't see them in the act as it were. Um, so biological species concept can't really apply. So it's probably correct to say that most biological groups can't be defined using the biological species concept. And we're seeing the rules of bioreproductive isolation being broken all the time.
0: Okay, so I really like that. And it's fair to say that we like this concept because it applies to big stuff like us but if you think about the full scope of life alive now, it doesn't apply to most things. And if you consider that most life is has gone extinct and is therefore fossils, it doesn't apply to virtually anything out there other than a very small isolated group of things that are alive now and obey the rules. As my supervisor would have said, they've read the literature and they know what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so let's talk about some alternatives. Um, We're not going to go through the dozens and dozens of species concepts that actually exist, but I thought we should talk about some of the most commonly used ones that students will encounter. So after the biological species concept, the most common answer that we would get asking your grandmother is probably something called the morphological species concept. What's that?
1: So this one also makes a lot of intuitive sense that if you have things that look alike, we're going to classify them together. A species is a group of things that look alike or look more like each other than they look like other groups. So lions look like lions and you can ask a preschooler like, hey, what are these? And they'll go, those are lions. And they won't get confused about what else there is out there. This also is about the only thing we have to describe extinct species where all we have is morphology. So all we can classify them on is morphology, like in the case of fossils.
0: Morphology sounds simple. If it looks like a lion, it is a lion, and that's all we got for fossil life. So does it fail or is it more universal? It sounds pretty straightforward. It's okay
1: <laughs> until you start asking some more really good questions that I think a lot of people would get to, like how much difference do you need until it's a new species? What about when we have things that go through through changes like insects that change from larva to fly? There's other things that are so similar that we can't tell them apart. These are these are cryptic species. We're just looking at them, we can't tell them apart. Or you have some things out there that are trying to look like other species to fool their predators. That can be kind of tricky. There, there's also cases where males and females look so different that we've accidentally classified them as different species for years before figuring out that they were just the male and the female and so dna analyses have actually been really great for this that they found a number of cases of either cryptic species or instances where the females and the males are very diverged or we have other polymorphisms for example there's a group of brilliant blue butterflies that have been acknowledged as a species for more than 100 years Who turn out to just be the very flashy male versions of a also beautiful but more drab brown female butterfly it's not rare for example males to use super elaborate colors to be really exciting and then females to adopt to be a little bit more camouflaged this is an expectation we might even have in the literature so there's many cases in birds for example where the males are really really sparkly we can think about male cardinals whereas the females are a little bit more subdued or mammals, where the males have some kind of weaponry or antlers, like in deer, um, and the females just do not. And so when you think about how common this is, even in some of our like backyard animals like cardinals, you can think that, man, we might be getting the fossil record wrong actually quite a bit, uh, because we've accidentally split
0: the two sexes into two species. Uh, they look different, but they're interbreeding. I mean that's a really good problem that is raised all the time: is how do you interpret ornamentation when you don't know if it's sexually divergent or not in the fossil record? And this is, I know this is a really strong ongoing debate, even in things that are alive, we make this mistake. So in things that are extinct, where we can't observe behavior, we might easily oversplit males and females apart by size. We could even split juveniles from adults and call them two size classes, not realizing the developmental process of growth. So those probably are the two you most commonly get as answers to the what is a species question, someone talking about reproductive isolation or someone talking about morphology, what something looks like. And probably those are things that people encountered even in a high school biology class, one of those two definitions. Or if you had a really good teacher, probably both of them. And you've just ruined them. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah. I mean, next on my list, what's the genetic species concept? So there is a
1: couple of different genetic species concepts out there, but they're usually arguing for, again, some kind of discrete genetic pool, a small gene pool. Again, the nice thing about genetics is we can put a number on how much hybridization might be happening as long as most of the reproduction is within the group so that we think of the gene pool as being mostly discrete. Um, And it allows for a little bit more fuzz around
0: the lines there. So is that then a kind of solution to the fact that the biological species concept sometimes seems really strict? You can't have any mating outside the group. But then, of course, your research area is all about mating outside the group um, and hybrid formation. Does it allow for that kind of wiggle room in the definition?
1: So the genetic species concept is great that it can apply to groups that are clonal, but we just couldn't we couldn't do this with biological species concepts. But on the other hand, genetic rules to try and say there's this much amount of genetic variation as a species, this much amount is a population, this is a class. We are not decided on that. And it would be difficult to try and draw those strict lines, I think, because it's a continuum of variation. It's it's hard to know because you're looking at both the variation across groups or species, but also the variation within groups. And some groups have very little variation within them, which makes it hard to answer the question like, well, is that a lot? Is that a big number compared to the across species variation?" How you divide something based on genetics is also really hard.
0: That sounds like the same problem as morphology. How much is enough to make it different? And when you place some sort of rule on it, you need this amount of morphological variation to be a new species. Does that correspond at all to what they're actually doing? Reproductive outputs. If you took the same two sets of rules, you know, a morphological rule and a biological species concept rule, would they come up with the same numbers? It's interesting. Would you find the same groups?
1: I, I think that one of the great things about rules in biology is every time you try to make a rule, you're going to find half a dozen instances really quickly that break it. <laughs> which is the spice of life and also can be very frustrating.
0: (laughs) So that's the genetic species concept, which helps us unify stuff where we might oversplit it by morphology. It helps us deal with the clonal populations or the parthenogens or the all-female rotifer groups because we can just use DNA to cut through that. But then it has this how much is enough problem. How much variation makes a new species and does that mean anything? What about the phylogenetic species concept? What's this?
1: So this is a cool one too. There's several different versions of this, but for the most part, the phylogenetic concept tries to look at a phylogeny or like a tree of life and look at the things that cluster together in a little group. And so then the smallest group in the tree can then be diagnosed as being unique for some reason. So looking at the tips of the tree, clustering them together and saying like, okay, this is is a species, these are all together. Probably you would be incorporating some information already from morphological traits or genetic ones to try and help to find this smallest diagnosable group. And then you're going to have some of the same problems as soon as you bring in morphological traits or genetic traits. If you have field data about whether or not there's reproductive isolation there, you're still making some of these judgment calls and it can get a little bit philosophical can get a little bit circular, really, because you have a phylogeny that's made of data that's then used to say a branch is different because of the same data, which is a little bit troublesome. And of course, we are seeing also that groups are not totally discrete in a phylogeny. So if we look at a tree, but actually we're seeing that the twigs are <laughs> and interbreeding with each other, they're not really separate things. So sometimes we can think of phylogenies is more bushy than you can see in the diagrams that we draw. It's really hard to draw a circle around something that isn't separate and say, look, that, that's it. That's
0: a species and be confident in that. I like the way you described that. I mean, I've thought about that too. The fact that we think of these trees of life as being these lovely organized things, but that they probably look more like bushes a lot of the time, particularly at those tips and If you think about lying on the grass and looking up at a tree and i asked you where does a branch change into a twig and could you separate the twigs from the branches and draw a circle around them well it's a continuum it's hard to figure out where does the branch stop and the twigs start so yeah i agree it's 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 a good concept but you need more data to try and solve it now one of the ones that comes up sometimes particularly when you move into um, ecological classes in university is what's an ecological species concept?
1: Oh, so this is this is cool. And it is it is quite a bit different. So it it says that a species is something which functions differently to others in the environment. So it looks at how individuals in that group are relating to their environment and whether or not they fill a discrete ecological niche compared to other species groups in the environment. So it's more based on what these populations are doing in the environment than what they look like or how they reproduce. It's interesting. It's an interesting idea, but it's probably really hard to actually use because you would have to have a lot of information about how individuals within populations are filling into these niches. And it can be really hard to figure out what a niche is. So I think if you were an alien and visited the earth and you were told to use that rule, you might have a hard time you might separate humans into two groups vegetarians and humans who eat meat and vegetables you know because those are different food sources or you might separate people who live into apartments from those who live in houses from those who live on farms Uh, these are different habitat niches so it's kind of a silly example but given that there's quite a bit of plasticity among individuals that they can move between these niches I think it can illustrate how hard it is And then again, the ecological species concept would be really difficult to apply to the fossil record, I think.
0: So what do taxonomists actually do then if they're supposed to be out there describing species? And we've just talked about a variety of different concepts that are wildly different and how they might fit. What's a taxonomist to do?
1: Most of the time, taxonomists are going to define new species based on multiple concepts. So they're going to draw multiple lines of evidence uh, incorporating a bunch of these different species concepts to then try and make an argument for why they have a new species. And so it's really great when you can say, okay, this new group of individuals in a population that I'm going to call a species fits all of these different species concepts. Great. And that's going to be not super controversial. Secondly, within different major groups, if in birds or in fish or in fossil trilobites, you tend to find consistency. So you can apply a concept to them on their own. We can apply species concepts within birds or within songbirds, and we can apply slightly different rules of different species concepts within fish or fossils. What we don't really expect is that the same rules and the same species concept that we use for group A will automatically work for group B. It's,
0: I guess it impl- it implies that there are different rules to different groups, that a species of mammal may be defined by totally different parameters than a species of fish or a species of fossil trilobite, as you say, that the rules we can use and the data we can use is gonna vary a lot.
1: I, I mean, I think that's true. I also think people working within those groups are probably comfortable with
0: that. So why is this such a challenge? Why don't we have some sort of universal species concept? I mean, we think that evolution is happening to all of these groups all of these times. Why shouldn't there be some consistency in how biological groups form? I
1: mean, it's because of evolution that this is so hard. It's really hard. When we're talking about species, we're sort of implying that it's this fixed thing that's not changing. But really, we're looking at a snapshot in very long evolutionary time. And evolution is continuous. It's always happening, which means that it's always continuing. And we have to assume that if you're studying something in nature, it it might be following a biological species concept right now. But it also could be in the process of splitting and speciating into something new, or there could be hybridization happening or natural selection, maybe favoring something that's causing its morphology or behavior or niche to change. So that's kind of the fun of it. Like, that's why we get out there and study evolution to try and understand this. But it doesn't make it straightforward to apply these rules
0: in in a very strict sense. So it's the very fact that evolution is occurring, which means that we shouldn't expect these things to just be nice static entities that we can draw boxes around because they're constantly changing. And so our boxes have to change to adapt.
1: Um, Yeah, I think it's really complicated. And I think even Darwin knew this. There are lots of places in the origin of species where he kind of comments on how vague and vague an idea species is.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a famous famous line that often gets quoted from Darwin saying, uh, I think he actually said in The Origin of Species, I was much struck by how entirely vague and arbitrary the distinction between species and varieties. And he's sort of acknowledging the fact that in this entire book, based around how species might form, he couldn't define them any better than we can. And he didn't have a working definition. And I think that's sort of important to realize that passages like that are common in the book that we hold up as being one of the first ones to really make the argument for how evolution truly worked and how selection worked, that he was acknowledging the fact that you couldn't define some of these things. It was okay because the continuous process doesn't create a static entity necessarily, or if it does, it may not last too long.
1: Yeah, I think if we knew it all, it'd be really boring to to go out and try and research some more. So
0: I'm kind of glad we don't. (laughs) I suppose I am too. We'd be out of a job yeah. and it was easy. <laughs> okay, I'll ask you one last question then. We've mentioned hybrids a lot, and this is the area that you study. And you actually argued to me that one of the reasons that the biological species concept can be a problem is that hybrids exist and they can be fully fertile. How common are they? How many are out there?
1: Oh, hybrids are hybrids are wonderfully common. So, Um, A kind of general understanding is that something like 25% of plant species and 10% of animal species are hybridizing. Human influences things like climate change and movement of species from place to place. We're seeing more and more hybridization. And then additionally, with the use of genetics and genomics, we're finding that it's easier to detect than it once was. So hybridization is very common um, and
0: very cool and fun to work on, but totally breaks the biological species concept. So the idea that reproductive isolation could be the the clear and defining rule to keep species apart is becoming even more problematic the more we look.
1: Yeah, I think it is becoming more problematic. I think we are seeing more hybridization, I think, especially when we are seeing things like increased human disturbance. More urbanization has been shown to lead to increased hybridization movement of species from place to place through things like shipping lanes is leading to increased hybridization. So it takes a very long time to make reproductively isolated species using evolution
0: and a very short time to break it. So we, I guess you mean the, the idea that we're actually putting species in contact that have never been in contact before through our own actions. And in doing so, we're beginning to test some of those potential barriers to see if they have ever formed in the first place.
1: Yeah, just so. And in some cases, when all we have are geographical barriers, as soon as humans break the geographical barrier, then we can see lots and lots of hybridization. And it doesn't mean that the species weren't fully formed. It just means that what had formed them, either there isn't complete genetic isolation between them yet, um, and so they can still breed, or it was just a
0: mountain range in between them that was keeping them apart. No selection in favor of the formation of a reason not to breed if they'd never been in contact, there, could, there would never have been a role of selection in preventing their interbreeding.
1: There's some really cool research suggesting that when we have species that are touching in places, so when they are sympatric, compared to when they are not touching allopatric, there's stronger selection against them interbreeding when they're in sympatry than when they're in allopatry. And so when the individuals from the allopatric regions end up touching for whatever reason, then there's, yeah, no selection to stop them from breeding or or less than would do the trick.
0: Okay, thank you, Erin, for joining me today to talk a bit about species concepts. Thank you for having me. This has been a presentation of the bio audio podcast. I started BioAudio as a live Q and a session with the class when they had questions that were outside my area of expertise over the course of a few years, live sessions became some recorded sessions and then a hosted interview and then some audio files for the class at the request of some of my students. I made them public as a podcast so they could more easily listen on their phones. I was not prepared for how enthusiastic the class was, and a few episodes soon became a dozen, and then enough to provide a free alternative to traditional textbook readings. The goal is to learn through interviewing experts and former students, and to make an alternative free and more inclusive resource. We are not perfect, but we're learning as we go. If you have enjoyed this episode, particularly if you are a student, leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on X at doctor underscore bat underscore girl, on Mastodon at profbatgirl at ecoevo.social or bluesky at profbatgirl.bsky.social, where I post new episodes and new news from my research lab. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation of the Bioaudio podcast.